Good morning, church. Oh, come on, guys. Good morning, church. There we go. There we go. You can get some fire in your bones today, I promise. As I ensured Jonathan, I would deliver some fire today. Some good old Baptist fire. We need fire today, don't we? Uh, please turn in your Bibles to uh, Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 24. We'll start. Our text will be today, Proverbs 24, verse 10 through verse 12. Listen to the word of God in its wisdom. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his works? Let's pray as we enter in to the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen me, Lord, in this time. Lord, that I be faithful to deliver this message as difficult and as challenging as it is, a subject matter and a topic, Lord, that evangelism is reaching out to the lost is such an important issue and has been on your mind before the foundations of the world were laid. And of all the subject matters that we need to expose um, to preach obedience to you, the King, Jesus Christ, of those topics, probably the lowest hanging fruit in my eyes is the slaughtering of the unborn. As we see the nations raging presently about decisions made in Texas and now growing elsewhere as the the seeking of the abolition of abortion in our nation, which we would consider to be a modern-day holocaust, is seeming to gain traction, Lord, that those who are faithful to uphold this difficult subject matter and stand firmly against those who disagree, Lord, I pray today that we would have a better understanding of your heart on the matter and why it is so important for us to be involved in this very important mission to end abortion in our nation, which is nothing short of child sacrifice. I tremble at consideration of this message. I tremble in its deliverance, knowing that the response of people has been so bitter. Knowing that some have decided to move on. Some have argued vehemently that it should be something that we should embrace and accept. And those who name your name would say even that it is something we shouldn't even fight against. Lord, I pray that uh, your heart would be clearly revealed today, that I would be hidden in the matter, and that I'd be faithful to declare your word in its revelation, in its purity, uh, in its truthfulness. Lord, I pray for contrite hearts, humility, a willingness to receive, a willingness to be corrected, to be exhorted and even rebuked if needed. Rebuke us, Lord, where needed. Let the sword of your word do the work here. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, as I prayed, wonderful topic today. Fantastic topic today. And the title of this sermon is, Me? Who, me? You mean me? I'm supposed to be involved in this? I'm supposed to be evangelizing? Are you sure? Why me? Why is this something that we need to address? Why should we be concerned? Some of you who are here visiting today may not be aware that our church is actively involved in the End Abortion Now mission. End Abortion Now is now an international movement where I think it's, I know it's beyond, it's in the hundreds, beyond three, maybe four, close to 500 churches are involved. We got in at the very beginning at the ground floor of it. And as a part of this mission and ministry, uh, we have launched a media ministry in which the End Abortion Now mission uh, from Apologia Church has invested media equipment to really expose the darkness of abortion, to expose the reality of what's going on, and to encourage the furtherance of its mission to end abortion in our nation and beyond. And it has had incredible traction. And this has not been, as you can imagine, the most popular message. It's a hard message. As a matter of fact, uh, and I need to apologize to my family, I apologize to you publicly right now, beloved wife, that a dark cloud has weighed over my heart for the last week, at least, as I've been in preparation for this message. I apologize. My wife is wondering what in the world is wrong with this man. Uh, just a dark cloud has weighed over me. An emotional cloud. It's been hard for me. It's hard as a pastor to think that people wouldn't be provoked by the destruction of the unborn in our city that other pastors and other organizations in our city like Focus on the Family, and I'm naming names today, and I'm glad this is being recorded, like Focus on the Family and Navigators and other organizations, right? As hard as this might sound. Why aren't they involved? How is it possible that this atrocity is happening and occurring in our city? This is the question that I'm asking myself. As we faithfully stand week in and week out, in front of Planned Parenthood, pleading with women to keep their children. As some of you might know, there have been those who have approached us and said, this is the wrong way to go about it. What you are doing right now is not helping. It's not effective. There are other ways to address this issue. Let's not name names. Let's not call people out. Let's not uh, stand in front of churches, if you will, in the church repent movement, which I'm not a, a huge fan of. But let's not stand in front of churches and cry out to them, pleading with their pastors and their people to get involved. Let's not beat the bride of Christ, right? I, I, I agree with that. And I hope that that's not going to come out today. What I hope to convey to you in this message is what provoked my heart. I had to ask myself, what changed my mind? Guys, for a good period of time, I was blinded to this issue. I was just like many of us here today and, and those who might be listening in. I was blinded to this issue until I stumbled across Apologia's mission, until I stumbled across their work on End Abortion Now, and I saw what they were doing. I listened to their message and the way that they were addressing the women and the men walking in and out of Planned Parenthood. And something clicked within me. Something happened. Something dramatically changed in my heart. And that's what I'm hoping to share to you today. That you can hear really God's heart in the matter. Okay, So I'm sharing it. It's a very challenging and a very difficult message. But what I'm hoping to do is provoke you to action today. And provoking you to action 
by virtue of just listening to what God has to say on the matter. So when you think about this passage that, we're, that we've read today, we have to ask ourselves, what does this passage have to do at all with evangelism, you might ask? I've had, the, I've had people challenge me with this. They say, Jeremy, uh, the end abortion now mission, what, how is that evangelism? It seems to be an alternative or an outside work or an action that doesn't directly correlate uh, with evangelism. So first I want to do, and I'm going to provide you a, a structure here for those note takers among us. I want to provide you four primary points. Okay, First, the Constitution, and not, not the uh, U.S. Constitution. We must have a mental constitution. There must be a certain way that our minds must be framed as we look at the subject matter, as we address it. So I'm going to deal with our Constitution. Secondly, I'm going to deal with our commission. That we have a certain commission given to us by our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I'm going to look at our commitment. What should that commitment look like based on this constitution and commission? And then fourthly, we're going to look at our consecration. The Lord has consecrated us in a particular way for a particular work on this matter. So let's start with our constitution. So we have to ask ourselves the tough question here. Okay, let's do this. Let's work through this together. And for those who would like to discuss this afterwards, we share a feast together. Uh, I'd be happy to hash this out and work this out with you. So please listen along and hear, hear the question. What mental constitution must a disciple in general possess as a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned in his service, our great king? We need to take the good news to the nations, Correct. We are commissioned by our Lord and King to take the good news of His kingdom to the nations. And with that comes a cost. He shares about this. There's a cost that comes along with evangelistic efforts. Okay, This taking of the good news. Sacrifices must be made and one must be mentally and physically prepared to count them and make them. Okay, So as Christians, uh, we must be aware that there is an interrelational sacrifice that is going to be made a, 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 a familial, right? A familial, right? Uh, that's what I meant to say. Familial sacrifice. There's going to be an issue that might arise up within even your family. There are going to be religious sacrifices that you're going to have to make and political sacrifices in the marketplace as a cost that you must count as a disciple. And Jesus says, we're going to quote here from Matthew 10, 38 through 39. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies who will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does this mean? This means that you need to be so utterly dedicated to the Lord and His service and His commission that it might even come to you as a cost in these relationships. There is a cost that you might have to set out and sacrifice and be willing to do so. And if you don't, this burden of the cross, as he says, what will happen? You reject and despise the Lord, he's saying. You have nothing to do with me. You're not my disciple. That's a heavy word. Now imagine the disciples who were hearing this in the time when he was sharing it. 
nonetheless us, right? So all the more, this issue becomes more pertinent even to us. So notice in the ESV, I'm, by the way, I'm preaching from the ESV today if you're wondering why it might be a little different from yours. The ESV says faint in the day of adversity. Okay, There's this idea of fainting, like uh, adversity presents itself and you faint. Right? We can see what that, that would look like. You can imagine it in your mind. Okay, This fainting. Adversity shows itself and you faint, you crumble. Uh, the NASB says, as, as some of your translations might say, slack in the day of distress. You're going to be slack, not as willing to maybe commit yourself. There's this slackness involved. So you have slackness and faintness. They kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Right? I like what the, uh, the um, Holcomb Christian uh, Standard Bible says. It says, uh, if you do nothing in a difficult time. So there's faintness, slackness, and nothingness. So one who faints, they basically just utterly crumble under the pressure of adversity. Then there's one who's slack, who maybe is not as inclined to get involved. And then there's one who just stands by and just goes, nope, not for me, right? Think of the certain parables Jesus brought up. The one that comes to mind for me, and we won't go through this today, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. These examples are exactly portrayed and displayed when the Samaritan is basically left for dead on the roadside. And the three different individuals that Jesus uses as a description and describing their response to the Samaritan are exactly these terms. One looks at it like, ooh, better stay religiously pure. Ooh, not my problem, and whoa, that's a Samaritan. No, no, no. We don't involve ourselves with them, right? That's a, you know, but what happened is the good Samaritan comes along, right? And he's like, no, I'll take care of him. Matter of fact, I'm going to put him up on my own coin and make sure he's brought back to health, and I'm going to send him on his way. We're going to do the right thing here. Okay, don't be like the other two examples in the parable of the Good Samaritan. My encouragement to you today is to consider, are you one of those three? And which one are you? Are you the Samaritan who looks to engage with the circumstance? Who recognizes it for what it is and is willing to commit themselves, come what may? Willing to sacrifice your own time, energy, and finances? Is that, is that what describes your your willingness? Or are you the kind of person that looks at it and makes theological excuses for why you can't do it and would have nothing to do with it anyway because you don't want to be ceremony, ceremonially unclean? Or that might be just too hard. That's, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Okay. So the idea of being con- uh, considered here in, in the Proverbs is that uh, one is being seized by fear and anxiety. Okay. Causing them to shrink back in adverse circumstances, all the while, and this is key, all the while, knowing that it's wrong to do so. It's wrong. They stand back, they're shrinking from anxiety, and they know all the while, I should be involved. But they don't. And in doing so, they dishonor Christ and those around them. In other words, they are crippled by cowardice. Those are heavy words, right? That's what this proverb is getting across to you. Here's wisdom for you. You stand firm on God's word. You see the world through his eyes. It's knit firmly in your heart. His word is ready and available to you. You want to honor your creator. Don't be crippled by cowardice. You can't be Jesus' disciple unless you bear the cross. 
Don't be crippled by cowardice. So we have to ask ourselves, what sort of circumstances would cause someone to respond in such a way of adversity? Okay, Knowing that in their heart, that they're shying away from doing the right thing, and that it may cost them their lives, maybe other person's lives, or both. Because this is kind of the intense, that's the extreme circumstance. This might come at cost to your life, maybe someone else's life, or might even both. Okay, That would be the extreme example. We can even replace with life with, this might come at an expense of your time and energy, or your finances, maybe the cost of, uh, of someone else, or both. Just fill in the blank of something that you would have to sacrifice, like a relationship, or anything else, that might come at your cost, someone else, or maybe even both. Okay. So think about it. One example that came to mind when I was studying through this was Peter's denial of Christ. Here he was in an extreme adverse circumstance. Jesus had just been arrested. He had drug off to the Sanhedrin to be tried, right? And he's going back and forth between Herod's court and the Sanhedrin, right? What happened to Peter? What did he do? Peter openly denied, to his shame, written in Scripture for all to know and all to see uh, for all eternity, right? Uh, You know what I'm saying? He denied the living, he denied the Christ. He denied the Messiah right there in an earshot after he had been faithful to be his disciple and and walk with him throughout all of his journeys, seeing everything that he saw in the end of it all when he was arrested because of his idea of what the Messiah should be out of fear for his own life and saving his own neck, knowing that it was wrong. Why did he know it was wrong? He wept. He was destroyed. He had to be restored as we find out later in Scripture. He knew it was wrong to deny him. What are another example maybe in our time? We have soldiers here in the room, okay? People who have trained for combat, people who might have gone into combat out here. For those soldiers in the room, when you have trained with people, we all know that you can train as much as you want, but when when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road and you're in a combat situation, there are two types of people. There are fighters and there are flighters. There are people who get crippled in the moment that that they are called to their duty, and there are people who run away. Traitors. And it costs people their lives, right? Those who have been soldiers in the room. Who do you want to go into combat with? The one who said he had your back the whole time and he bails at the moment you need him most? Or do you want to go into combat with someone who you know will have your back and is covering you and protecting your life and watching over you? I think that's an easy one to answer, right? One example that came to mind, I'm not sure if any of you guys have seen it. It's a tough movie to watch, but if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, uh, one that came to mind was there's a scene that just absolutely wrenches the heart. There's a scene in that where uh, one of uh, a soldier's battle buddy, basically, a guy who he's he's in combat with, is fighting hand-to-hand combat with a German soldier. The German soldier comes in. The man gets scared. He's crippled with fear. He hides in a corner while he's listening to his buddy slowly but surely be defeated and then finally killed in the other room, just right on the other side. And this German soldier looks down at him after he had killed his friend and was struck with his cowardice and just walked away. He didn't even fight him because he knew he didn't have to. He had already been defeated in his heart. That scene always gets me. It fires me up. It makes me angry. 
because that man knew that what he was doing was wrong and he was unwilling to make a stand when, it, when he needed to the most. Okay? Think about um, examples in our time where men are being falsely accused of a crime and being choked out by the police in public while everybody's standing by and filming with their cameras and doing nothing. Causes some public outrage, doesn't it? As people just stand by and watch a man be killed right in front of their very eyes while they're doing absolutely nothing. Cowards. They film it and they share it with their friends. So there's an example of this that I think touches home. And I cannot watch this little 10-minute documentary without being struck into tears. Every single time I watch it, and there's one statement, I'll get to it and I'll try to, I'll try to sustain myself here, that always provokes me. And this is something that is ever before me as I walk out to the mission field and consider what it means to rescue those from death. The documentary is called Sing a Little Louder. Some of you might have seen it, and I encourage you to watch it. Sing a Little Louder is a World War II documentary that in the height of World War II during the Holocaust, uh, there was a train carrying folks uh, that were being taken to be destroyed in the death camps that broke down just outside of a little church during the middle of its worship service. And that train was close enough to actually hear the cries of the passengers. This is based on a true story. They could hear inside the church. They could hear the cries and the pleas for help inside the church during the worship service. And instead of coming to their aid, the pastor encouraged the congregation to sing a little louder over the top of their pleas. It's a memory that a young boy among them will never be able to put out of his mind. And in the end, that young boy, now advanced in age, with an unquestionably tormented conscience, laments, saying this, I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive us for calling ourselves Christian that did nothing to intervene. That did nothing to intervene. How could we call ourselves Christians doing nothing to intervene? It's a powerful testimony, one I believe touches the heart of our subject today. The American Holocaust that encourages and even celebrates the barbaric practice of abortion, which is nothing short of, as I'll argue here, child sacrifice. It is child sacrifice. It is a, an apostate worship that leads by implication to the destruction of the unborn. And it's here in our city the laws of our land protect it, and because of that, unborn babies are killed nationwide by the millions. So are we as Christians obligated to intervene? Is it really a gospel issue? So if it is, then what should we do? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves, right? We have to ask ourselves that hard question, guys. As hard as this might be, I'm, I'm pleading with you to, to go along with me here and listen through this, okay? Some of you might already be erecting arguments in your mind. Well, I hope to refute those by the end of this sermon. Okay. So as good soldiers, you need to prepare your, your mind for battle with the proper perspective. Okay. Compare for yourselves. I implore you on your own. Compare for yourselves. Go back to Hebrews 11 
and look at the great cloud of witnesses that go before you. Look at the great cloud of witnesses and what they stood for and what it cost them. Okay, And, and furthermore, the Lord's exemplary response in Hebrews 12.3, uh, which the author says here, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He leads that by saying, we must look to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated presently at the right hand of the throne of God. So with that said, as, as he is seated presently at the right hand throne of God, what does that mean for us when Jesus Christ, in giving the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Go therefore, because of this authority that I have, I am seated at the right hand of the throne. Now I am commissioning you to go therefore. Okay? How does the gospel, the entire testimony of God's word, is expressed in and through the biblical worldview apply to the issue of abortion and child sacrifice? Okay, well, let's take a look. Proverbs 24.11 says, We are, without question, to work to the rescue of those who are being taken away to death to hold back those who are stumbling to or toward the slaughter. That's it. That's what we're to do. That's our role. That's our job, you guys. So how does that look in the issue of abortion? Well, let's use Psalm 82.4 as a template as we address society around us, okay? It says here, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of of the, of the gods, or the, or the other translations say sons of gods, this idea of judges, rulers, okay? And he holds judgment over them. God is seated on the throne. He takes his point. He takes his, assi- his seat as ruler over all of them. He is the, the suzerain king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. He is a ch- in charge of them, and he holds them to an account. And he says to them, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Meditate on that for a moment. Rulers, judges. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy and deliver them from the hand of darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, judges, rulers sons of the Most High, and all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And as we know what Jesus Christ admitted to, he inherited all the nations. He is the judge of the earth. Present tense. And he has commissioned us to go tell everyone about that. Right? The good news of his kingdom is you have a king and he requires your obedience. He has a rule. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you are required to obedience in every one of his ways. You are to uphold his truth and to live your life accordingly. It's not an option. It's a demand. And if you do not turn to him in obedience, we call that repentance. If you don't repent, what will happen? You'll die. You'll be taken away like chaff in the wind. You'll be like a tree that's not planted by the water. You will not yield your fruit in season. And you will ultimately be shriveled up. You'll be gathered up like wheat 
to be uh, like, like chaff, like weeds, to be thrown into the fire. Think of all the different examples Jesus speaks of in, in terms of the judgment and the scriptures before that. Okay? So arise, Jesus Christ, judge of the earth, for you have inherited all the nations. They are yours, and you have commissioned your people, your church, your disciples to declare such, to uphold what we say, the obedience to the gospel, to command it. It's not a popular message, amen? Okay. Proverbs 6, 19, 6 uh, says this, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven of them are an abomination to Him, and they are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discords among the brothers. Question for you, does this apply just to Israel only? Does this just apply to the church alone? Only to Christians? No, my friends. This is the heart of God. He hates them still today. He hates them just as much today as he did when this was written in Proverbs 6 and before. It is your wisdom to know this and to apply it, the Proverbs say. The application of this says, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, those who are going in to lead their children to death as they are planning to abort them. You need to know that God hates that. You need to be obedient to your king. I know you don't believe you have a king, but you do. The Lord Jesus Christ is king over all the earth. He is judge over all the earth. He is holding all into an account. And we are his prosecutors. And we're here to tell you that you owe obedience and allegiance to him. And if you don't, you'll be continuing the chaos in the society that you are breeding. You'll continue to perpetuate the problem of evil, if you will. And unless you, give, uh, unless you relent and turn, repent, you'll be destroyed by him. In Leviticus 20, 1-5, look what it says. Look what the law says. Okay? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his sons or children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from among this people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I'll set my face against that man and against his clan and I'll cut them off from among their people and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. See that? It's not just the people who do it. Is this ringing true? You hear this other place in New Testament? It's not just those who are doing such wickedness, but also those who fail to stand and say something about it or do anything about it, to act according to God's command, who give hearty approval to those who do, who are found complicit in those things. If we fail to act, as James says, you are complicit in the sins of others. If you fail to say, to say to someone, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's disobedient to God's holy command. By the way, in the old covenant, that's worthy of death. You were to be stoned to death for doing such a thing. Our laws should reflect what I believe the death penalty for murdering someone else, as Genesis 9 says, 
don't shed the blood of, an, of another person. It, your blood should be required of you. Why? If you do, if you kill someone else with, with malicious intent, if your feet are quick to evil and you want to take someone else's life, what does it say? You kill them, your life is required of you, and what? what for what reason? It's because they bear God's image. They bear God's image. That's why we're not to shed the blood of, of people, particularly innocent people who can't say anything for themselves, particularly innocent people who are being killed unjustly. So in a sense, as I shared, we as the church are the interpreters and the prosecutors of God's law word. Just as the prophet spoke out adamantly against the abominable practice, declaring judgment upon Israel and the surrounding nations, so we are the king's prosecutors, holding his word high and holding the world accountable to it. Do you see that? How that works? In Isaiah 57, as we read this morning, it says, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick your tongue? Speaking of the unbeliever who is slandering and mocking the righteous as they uphold the word of God. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Think about that unpopular message to the people of Israel and the surrounding nations. Guess what happened to Isaiah? Well, they don't know. Most historians actually don't know what happened to Isaiah. But a number of historians believe he was martyred. Uh, some in the Jewish Mishnah, according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, uh, states that Manasseh slew him. Some think that. Uh, in Hebrews 11.37, it, it makes an allusion to someone who was sawn in half. The Jew Trypho accused the Jews of sawing Isaiah in two. Popular guy, right? Super popular message. But he had to deliver it. He was commanded to by his, by his creator. Okay? Jeremiah, in 32, 29-35, says, The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come and set the city on fire and burn it. <laughs> With the houses whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal, and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day. So I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned their back to me, not their face. And although I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They have set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built high places to Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. The prophets are directly confronting child sacrifice in Israel. Well, what, what happened to Isaiah, or uh, Jeremiah, excuse me? Well, we know, them, we know him as the weeping prophet. He wrote Lamentations. He was an incredibly broken man, 
about what was going on in Israel and also the surrounding nations. He was considered a fanatic by his opponents. This man's a fanatic. This guy's out of his mind. His scrolls that God had required him to write were confiscated and burned. He was banned from temple worship. He was in prison. Thrown into a cistern for death during the captivity. And we have no surviving records of his last years. Ezekiel 16.20 You took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, is the Lord saying, and these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children to deliver them up as an offering of fire to them? And later in verse 36, he says, God says that he gave those false gods the blood of their children. They were offering up those false gods the blood of their very children, something that God would never have commanded them to do. And it came to the destruction of their, of their city. Ezekiel was taken captive to Babylon. He wasn't even allowed by God to lament his passing wife as a prophetic object lesson. He lived, according to 2.6, Ezekiel 2.6, in briars and thorns in the midst of scorpions and was put to death by the leader of the Israelite exiles who had been rebuked by him for his worship for idols. So here's, here's Ezekiel, right? Struggling. This guy's having a hard time. And there's many other things that he suffered as an object lesson for Israel. Hey, you're worshiping idols. Put that man to death. Get him out of here. And part of that idolatry was what, as we find in Ezekiel, offering up their children to Molech, sacrificing, giving their, the blood of their children to gods. In Psalm 106, as he, read it, Psalm 106 is fantastic. It gives really basically a, a brief theological history of God's interaction with Israel. Okay? In verses 1 through 3, it says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of his praise? Blessed are they, blessed are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. Those are the blessed ones who observe justice and do righteousness at all times. And note what he says here in verse 34 through 42. They did not destroy all the peoples, speaking of God's commands to destroy the peoples that were set before him in the promised land, as the Lord had commanded them. They mixed within the nations and learned to do all as they did. Meaning, they syncretistically took on their worship practices. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols in Canaan, of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore with their deeds. Then in the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Can I ask a hard question? Do our enemies rule over us right now? Yes. Yeah. Those who are currently in office, the Biden administration, 
hate you, by the way. They hate you. And what are they doing? They're oppressing you. Oppressing you heart heavily. Can I make the conclusion here based on this prophetic witness that we have before us? That there's a good possibility that the reason that's the case is because Christians have decided, not my job. I don't need to intervene. Not my role. And that's presently why we have the situation that we're in. Now, you could also argue that God has appointed all leaders in their place, and he's appointed in their place. May I back that argument up by saying he's done that because he's judging this nation, because people are failing to stand. Christians, you have a voice. Let me continue on. Has God then, based on what we've heard in this prophetic witness, changed his mind? Has God changed his mind on these things? We're in the new covenant now. It's all grace, right? Come on, bro. You're being a little rough today. That's the old covenant. We're in the new. What does this have to do with the new covenant? Man, you've been sharing from the old covenant this whole time. Can you give us some New Testament grace and love, bro? A little bit of peace, less judgy, right? That's the old God. This is the new one for my Marcians in the room. No. Same God. He hates it just as much now as he did then. And this God who presently rules on the throne, who his inheritance is all the nations... It's defiling the nations now presently. Presently, the blood is defiling the very ground we stand on. Hands are guilty of shedding innocent blood in our nation. You have taken the mantle of the prophetic office as a Christian, whether you believe that or not, by virtue of being commissioned to declare the good news of the kingdom to the nations. It's not an option. God hates it just as much now. Or just as much now as he did back then. So what is our commitment? So I have to ask ourselves, are we permitted to then excuse ourselves from this work? Are Christians theologically excused as spiritual bystanders is a better way of putting it. Are we theologically excused as spiritual bystanders? Hey, bro, salvation is private. Redemption is of the heart. We're new creatures in Christ. We just need to be faithful to preach the gospel. And uh, in doing so, people are redeemed, and then ultimately all this will be wiped away, right? This will all go away. The Lord will restore all things, and we can live in peace, okay? Excuses. Let's take a look at those for a brief moment, okay? The issue of abortion, these are quotes. I'm kidding you not. These are things that have been directly confronted to us. We've had people leave the church. Let me, let me, let me pause here for a moment. Folks, we have had people use their tithe as leverage to not share this message. Use the tithe. We will leave, meaning what does that mean to the ministers who depend upon the gospel uh, to provide for their families? We will leave, we will leave if you share this. We will leave if you keep pressing this issue. Meaning, we're going to use our tithe as leverage to stop you from doing what you're doing. They didn't say it in those terms, but that's exactly what happened. And guess what they did, guys? We preached, and they left. And you know what? Praise God, our church is financially stable because the Lord has blessed our work and continues to do so, even with our small numbers. For those who are visitors today, about a quarter of our people are gone on vacation. This is not as small as it normally is, especially the Von Hassel clan. Half of you are missing, right? So if we preach, we'll leave. 
Listen to what they've said. Here's direct quotes. The issue of abortion is not a gospel issue, Jeremy. Salvation is a private issue between God and man. We preach the gospel, right? Man's heart is changed, and that's between them and the Lord. Our hope is not in this world. When we're redeemed, ultimately Christ will restore all things. As for now, we just need to walk with Christ to do our best uh, in this life as much as we can, as you've been saying, Jeremy, to be faithful in these things, uh, to love our families, to provide for them. But really, in the meantime, that's it. That's all we're here for. Eventually, we're going to be redeemed. All this is going to be burned up anyway. There's no sense in trying to make changes here now. Another excuse. God's providential hand, Jeremy, has ordained and installed these governmental systems, these leaders. He's put into place our wicked leaders that allow child sacrifice. By the way, there's a recent tweet by Biden in his response to um, the Texas decision, which is, by the way, just incrementalism. It's not an abolition. It's a heartbeat bill. His response was, we, are, we need to leverage all of the Constitution law, all of government power, to end this atrocity, to give freedom to reproductive rights. This is unconstitutional, he says. Your leader. And for those of you who vote for him, shame on you. It's your shame. He's placed these wicked leaders who allow sacrifice. Okay, That issue is beyond our control, Jeremy. There's nothing we can do about it. As you know, quoting scripture, God appoints these leaders. What are we, how are we to, how dare us act against the hand of God, right? Yeah. Furthermore, the Lord has already committed these people to judgment. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, Jeremy, that they've been given over to a debased mind. And the reason they sacrifice these children is because of that. They're blind, they're slaves of the devil, and they're incapable of changing their minds. Come on, Jeremy, you're a good Reformed Baptist. You believe in the sovereignty of God, right? You must, Jeremy, have a low view of the sovereignty of God to think that we can affect governmental changes on the matter. The church really has no place in the marketplace or civics. It's the sovereignty of God that's upholding all these things. We, as Christians, are just to go about our business, live peaceably, which that's not what it means, live peaceably in a, as much as possible, and when we're finally oppressed enough by the government to commit sin, then we should say something. But this issue of abortion is something that God has given people over to in judgment. It's part of his judgment. There's no reason for us to try to act or fight against it. Some would say, that's not my calling, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm not like you. I'm not called to be an evangelist or a preacher. I could never get in front of people and say these things like you do. I'm not gifted in that whole role of evangelism thing. It's not my gifting. Uh, just so you know, that's not a gifting in the, per se. It's a calling. It's a command by virtue of the Great Commission. All, which I will go into next week for those who want to come back next week. The question to the answer today will be yes, you. But it will show and demonstrate the responsibility that the pastors have. The great responsibility that the pastors have is to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. All are called to declare the good news of the gospel. Amen? I mean, I'm sure everybody here would agree that. What we're seeing here is this is a grave issue that needs to be addressed. It is a gospel problem that demands a gospel solution. And apart from the work of Christ, people would continue on killing their children. Okay? 
Jeremy, I don't have the time or energy or finances. And uh, nor would I be willing to invest them anyway because I don't believe it's worth it. I don't have the time, energy, or finances. And really, honestly, if I'm being honest in my heart of hearts, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth our time. I don't think that's something that we should be focused on. Jeremy, why is Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church only concentrating on this? Seems like this is all you guys care about. It's all you guys talk about. Okay. There are other issues the local church should be focused on, such as feeding the homeless and caring for orphans and widows. All good things. Or maybe we should focus a little bit more on internal internal matters, right? Right? Maybe we should spend some more time focusing a little bit on the problems we got going on in here, like doing some counseling and stuff and working through stuff with people. Why are we going to, you know, we're just a tiny little church, Jeremy. Why are we going to go out there? Well, see, the very problem is we are a tiny church. And because this is an outreach issue, we should be doing outreach, right? Amen. Or should we be sheep thieving and looking to steal people from other churches? Or should we be growing the church by the advancement of the gospel in our city? Yeah, I'd say the latter, right? Amen. And for those who want to join us, praise God. Because they see the word being faithfully taught. They see that the elders love their people. They see that the, the ordinances are being observed, both the, um, the Lord's Supper and baptism. But, but we see new believers coming into the church and being discipled, being baptized. That's how we should be growing. So this is an outreach opportunity. That's why we're focused on it. And because we're a small church, and we can only dedicate so much resources to it, because of that, we decide to dedicate our energy to do it well on this topic because we believe that the killing of the unborn children is the lowest possible hanging fruit that could be addressed. Amen? I mean, here it is. I, Jonathan, in his sermon a, a, a bit ago, said something along the lines of children in our city were being gathered up uh, into somewhere in the city, in a field somewhere, and being put to death, there would be outrage. Yet because it's happening behind closed doors in a place that looks like a healthcare center, we don't care as much. And then finally, people would say things like, your approach really isn't that effective, okay? Jeremy, you need to be a little bit more gentle. Now, if anybody knows me, and I'm sure maybe those who are visiting today, have experienced a bit of this. Gentleness is not my... That's not my first thing I go to, right? I'm not a gentle guy. Ask my wife, my poor wife. She has to deal with me often and my kids. I, I have to pray through the Lord is sanctifying me into gentleness, okay? You need to be a bit more gentle, maybe more loving, less judgmental. You should just preach the gospel, Jeremy. No need to talk about all this yucky stuff, right? And when necessary, use words. Live your life in the gospel, Jeremy. Don't, don't challenge people so much. That's a little rough. And they would ask, what are we accomplishing here weekly by being out here on a street corner talking to people, imploring them through a megaphone? It seems to be a waste of time. I don't really see the results. Uh, my friends, it's not a waste of time. If one life is saved, it is worth every bit of our time, energy, effort, and finances. Amen? One child, just so you know, we've had people come to us, whether it be the signs, whether it be the message, or just our very presence out there, have come to us and said, we've decided to keep our child. Worth it. Every bit of it. Despite how many years we've spent out there. 
So to conclude here, Proverbs 24 through 12 says then, Behold, you cannot say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weigh, God speaking of God, perceive it? You cannot make the excuse, we didn't know that. God will weigh your hearts. We didn't understand that that was the real deal or the issue. God will weigh your heart. You can't make an excuse is what he's saying here. Does not he who keep watch over your soul know it? And will not he repay man according to his works? There's no excuse that can be made. We know that God will indeed absolutely render to man according to his works. That means that in every, that, this means that in every image bearer has an obligation to act and will be without defense before God for not doing so. So I bound your conscience today. You're welcome. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be out there on the street corner with us. That doesn't necessarily have mean you have to give your finances to it. Or your time and energy. But you need to give something. You need to be behind what we're doing. Because God's behind it. Not because it's something like it's our pet project. Trust me. I would pick many other pet projects out there to be involved as a church. Not this one, which is really hard to do, right? So you have taken up the prophetic mantle as the king's prosecution. You hold the world, the entire world, accountable to Christ via his law word. You are commissioned to proclaim and demand the obedience of the gospel to all nations, especially in this issue, okay? Remember what Jesus says in Revelations 21, 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You are a coward. You will join the rest with them. You are not allowed to be a coward Christian. There is no such thing. They are mutually exclusive terms. um, And it's unacceptable. Let's look finally, let's just read together the Lord's high priestly prayer as I conclude. I just want you to see what Jesus has to say about who we are and what he has consecrated us to do and what he expects from us. His high priestly prayer starts in John 17. It says, when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son might glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had which you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know everything that you have given to me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come now to know, come now in the truth of that. I came from you, and they have been believed that you have sent me. I am praying to them, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, in which you have given me. I have guarded them, and I have not 
Uh, not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you in these things, and I speak in the world, that they may have joy filled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory to you have give, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, that know, these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words would have gone forth in honor of you, that your, that your desire, your heart's desire is to see the world redeemed to Christ, and you will accomplish such as you promise. As it says in Colossians 1, that all things, whether in heaven and earth, uh, visible or invisible, all things, including your church, will be reconciled to you by the blood of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be ministers of reconciliation, that we'd see this as such a pertinent issue, um, a way of preserving your created order, a way of calling people to an account for the way you've created things, the way you've created us and the way you've made us and the beauty behind that, the beauty of parenthood, the beauty and the gift of children. As my brother so eloquently put it this morning, the arrows that we send out the world to do great effect for your kingdom. Lord, I pray uh, that this would be a blessing to its hearers, Lord, that you would have corrected us, exhorted us, and where necessary, rebuked of us of our false understanding of child sacrifice and the beauty of what it means to be your children, your prosecutors, proclaiming your good news to the world and commanding obedience to you, Christ, which ultimately we know will be accomplished in the end as you place every single one of your enemies under your feet. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.